And there's no bypassing the cross. There's no bypassing the crucified Christ, the crucified believer, the agony and the torment of putting our sin to death and laying our costly lives down in self-denial in order to pursue Jesus. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Blessed Lord and King, we approach you this morning grateful for your person and work. You are the Son of Man and the Son of God. You are eternal. You are holy. You are all-knowing. You're the creator and the sustainer of all things. As Paul would say in Colossians, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the beginning, that in everything you might be preeminent. And you're the head of the church. So Lord, we thank you this morning that in you all things hold together. And as your people, together this morning, we thank you that we have the opportunity to open up the scriptures and to be taught and instructed and encouraged and, yes, convicted. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do that work of conviction that only you can do and that you would use your word to sharpen us and, Lord, maybe even to work repentance in some of our lives. Teach us your ways that we may walk in your truth and be conformed more into the image of you, Jesus, that we, your church, your bride, may be washed in the water of your word this morning. We love you and we need you. You're our rock and our redeemer. And we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Teach us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is the most Hebrew of the four Gospels. It was written, we know, of course, by an un, uh, a previously unconverted Jewish tax collector known as Levi, who became a follower of Christ, and we know him now affectionately as Matthew. There are, in Matthew's Gospel, more Old Testament quotes than in Mark, Luke, or John. Some scholars would estimate there's 40 direct quotes of the Old Testament and over 100 allusions or inferences of the Old. We know that the Old Testament points ahead to the coming Messiah who would be the seed of Abraham and who would sit on David's throne. And right out of the gate in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we see in Jesus' lineage that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, 12 different times in this gospel, we see the word fulfilled, that Jesus fulfilled some Old Testament prophecy. The prophecies from Genesis to Malachi are now realized in Christ. And though Matthew's gospel is deeply rooted in Judaism, it doesn't root the reader's hope back in Abraham or back in Moses or back in David. Instead, it highlights the risen Christ as the fulfillment of the law. And the book of Matthew ends right after Jesus' resurrection and yet right before his glorious ascension where he commissions his disciples with a command to go into all the world and disciple the nations. In other words, the gospel of the kingdom is a message that is not meant to stay only in Jerusalem for the Jew. No, it is a message for the whole world. And as most of us here are Gentiles, we can say amen to that truth. Here in Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus has, at the beginning of the chapter, just previously interacted with the Jewish religious leaders. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they had come to him with a, with a request, with a demand that he show them a sign from heaven to prove he was who he said he was. And he countered their demand with this answer. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. We know Jonah, the story of Jonah. He was the prophet who is, quote, if you would, in the belly of the earth for three days and who came back to life. So what Jesus is saying to them is, even if I were to come and perform some spectacular miracle for you, you still would refuse to believe in me. So the only thing that you get as a sign is my resurrection. These religious leaders did long for a savior, but in their minds, he was supposed to come as a political ruler who would rule with power and might. Thus, they overlooked the priority of the Messiah coming to bear sin and reconcile stony hearts with Yahweh. So the way that they slept at night was they just dismissed Jesus as a misguided rabbi. Yeah, he works miracles, but he does it on the Sabbath. And he threatened their power and prestige. So they eventually had him put to death. Jesus, in this chapter, goes on to warn in verses 5 through around 12, to warn his disciples against the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. And that had nothing to do with bread and everything to do with guarding against the influence of their teaching, which could permeate a community. It would permeate a community with fixing your eyes on self-righteousness rather than justification by faith with a life yielded to Yahweh in heart, soul, mind, and strength. The religious leader's teaching could easily lead someone to what Jesus called them twice a son of hell that they were. So Jesus says, beware, stay away from their teaching. But then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we learn that Jesus and his disciples depart from that Jewish area and they go north, east, and enter the region known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is not a place that Jews ever seem to frequent. Very religious location, though. Religious for the Greco-Roman. You see, it was about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And originally, it was the northern end of Israel. In our study of Genesis, we've been talking about this bookend of from Dan to Beersheba. And that's basically a phrase that encapsulates all of the land of Israel. As far north as Dan and as far south as Beersheba. So this is an area up near Dan. And in 20 BC, Caesar Augustus gave Herod the Great control of this area. And it was named Peneus after the god Pan. They named it Peneus. Well, Herod died. And so the area was passed on to his son, Philip the Tetrarch. He rebuilt this ancient city of Peneus. And he made it much more large and beautiful, even though it has a very beautiful location with natural hills and the springs of the Jordan River. And so he changed the name to Caesarea Philippi. One of those names, Caesarea, was a nod for Caesar Tiberius, and the other was a name that was a nod to his own name, Philip. So uh, Caesarea Philippi. And he made it the capital and ruled the area until 33 AD. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, there is this beautiful hill or mountain for us in Florida. And on the side of this hill, there is a deep cavernous pit that seems to be bottomless. You can see it's located on the far left of that picture. 
And many geologists over the years have tried to let ropes down in order to measure the depth, but they've been unsuccessful. It seems to be bottomless. And this cave system underneath this area was so vast, it was considered by Josephus to be the very source of the Jordan River. It was so beautiful of a place that Alexander the Great visited there, and he had the Greeks build a sanctuary there. Well, the ancient Canaanites had already had a temple to Baal, and eventually the Romans said, if you can't beat them, join them, and so they built a temple to Zeus. So if you notice here on the screen, the temple of Augustus was built right in front of the cave entrance, which, which was uh, where Pan was believed, the god Pan was believed to reside. They had the court of Pan, they had the temple of Zeus, they have the upper tomb temple and the lower tomb temple. This place, Caesarea Philippi, was a place riddled with idols. You could worship Baal, you could worship Zeus, you could worship Pan, or you could worship the political ruler, Caesar. In fact, that cave, the cave of Pan, was often described by the Jews as the gate of Hades, the very gates of hell. And it's in this setting, against the backdrop of both Israel's confusion over who Jesus was and standing in front of the Greco-Roman gods that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? William Barclay says this, quote, it is as if Jesus deliberately sets himself against the backdrop of the world's religions and all their history and grandeur or splendor and demanded to be compared to them and to have the verdict given in his favor. And it is here in Caesarea Philippi that for the first time in all of the scriptures, we read the word church in our Bibles. We don't read church first in Acts chapter 2 with the foundation of the church at Pentecost, which is where we'd expect church to first show up. It's not first with Paul, the robust church planning apostle. No, the word is not even introduced in a primarily Jewish location. No, this is at the seat of what can only be a demonically inspired altar of pagan worship among all these rival deities of Greco-Roman idolatry. It's here that Jesus unveils who he truly is and that he then declares that he will build his church. And this church, this people, this body, this community will triumph over any evil earthly rebellion the world will seek to set up in order to defy the Son who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. So today, I want us to study this text and look together at the importance of who the church is and what our function truly is. What does it mean to be the church? And though we're not in Genesis today, this is still an exposition of Matthew 16. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to look at four important aspects of the church this morning. We're going to see the confession. We're going to see the commission. We're going to look at the confusion and finally, the cross. So look with me at verse 13. As we look at the confession, we'll spend most of our time on this first point. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, for a minute, in verse 13, circle or highlight or underline that phrase, son of man. This may, have well, uh, may well have been Jesus' favorite self-designation. But it's overly simplistic to say son of God is Jesus' deity, son of man, which literally is son of Adam, 
uh, is Jesus' uh, humanity. This is actually more likely a title that is a callback to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is here identifying himself as that son of man. This is no human. There is no human who has an everlasting dominion as much as the Democrats or the Republicans would like to assert they have an everlasting dominion. No, this is one from above. Jesus is declaring that I'm the son of man. But in asking this question, who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say I am? He's not asking out of ignorance as if he didn't know the answer. We've said this previously. When God asks a question in scripture, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Like in Genesis 3, where are you, Adam? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking to draw a confession out of his people. He sovereignly knows what's in man. Neither is Jesus asking because of his own fear of man. He's not insecure and wants to check in on his approval ratings. No, he knew what the religious leaders were saying in unbelief. And he knew what the crowds were contending for. He wants to find out what did the disciples believe. But notice their response. They say, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Now, Jesus did come proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't come teaching like the other teachers of the law. He, like John, was one who called out the self-righteous and the sinner to repent. And Herod, who was riddled with guilt for murdering John, it says in the scripture he was fearful that Jesus was John raised from the dead. But he was now performing miracles. John the Baptist never performed miracles. And remember, John had purposely said in John 3, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so clearly Jesus is not John the Baptist. The the disciples say, well, others say you're Elijah. And this may have been because previously in chapter 15, Jesus had fed a multitude of people. And Elijah, remember, had fed the widow and her son. So the people might be thinking that like Elijah, Jesus was a prophet. In fact, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he prophesies Elijah will come as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so they're thinking maybe he'll come before, maybe Jesus is the forerunner of the Messiah. Well, we know that was already fulfilled in John the Baptist. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. Even today, many Jews during Passover will leave a chair vacant for Elijah to occupy because they're still waiting for their Messiah. Others say, Jesus, that you are Jeremiah. The Jews had sort of folklore that Jeremiah would return to earth right before the Messiah and he'd bring with him the tabernacle and the ark and the altar of incense. But that's more folklore than scripture. Or maybe you're one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus, maybe you're one of those prophets that Moses referred to in Deuteronomy 18, 15, when he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So if we're to summarize this, the disciples say this, Jesus, the people of Israel see you as a prophet, but that's all, nothing more. Certainly not the Messiah, Maybe you're someone important coming before the Messiah, but not 
the Christ. And after hearing who the crowds confess Jesus to be, he then turns the question around to his 12 disciples. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Religion has its answers. Well, Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not God. The court of public opinion has its answers. Jesus is an important prophet, but he's not central to life, much like Israel thought. But Jesus brings this question before his disciples, the most important question in our Bibles, one that you and I must each answer personally, not your parents, not grandpa. You this morning must answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer to that question determines your reality. The answer to that question determines your destiny. The answer to that question determines not only the life you live here on earth, but also your very eternity. And one of his disciples answers. Now, without looking ahead, don't cheat. If you were to guess which of Jesus' 12 disciples is the first one to pipe up an answer, who do you think it is? It's Peter. Yes, of course it's Peter. You don't need a seminary degree to know that Peter answers this question. So look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Note with me the two phrases that Peter confesses here. First, he says, you are the Christ, the Christ. This is a title. This is not Jesus's last name. John MacArthur helps us out here and says, Christ, quote, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, God's predicted and long-awaited deliverer of Israel, the supreme anointed one, the coming high priest, king, prophet, and savior, end quote. So the Christ refers to his work, but the second phrase refers to his person. You are the Christ, but you are, secondly, the son of the living God. This is an Old Testament name for Yahweh. He's not the God of the dead. No, he's the God of the living. And Peter is affirming this confession in front of the shrine to Caesar Augustus. Peter here affirms, you, Jesus, not Caesar, are the true son of God. You see, Augustus, the Caesar, was the grandnephew and the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Rome had a phrase they loved to use concerning Caesar Augustus. They used the phrase divi filius, the Latin phrase that means son of a god. In fact, on their coins, on the one side you have Augustus' face, and then on the other, the phrase was emblazoned, devious or deviphilius, son of a god. But Peter dismisses that completely here. He says, no, you're the son of the living God. The world around us is declaring that it's a man. No, you are the son of God. When he says you're the son, that, of course, reflects oneness in essence with the Father. John's gospel consistently shows this to be the case. But son is also a callback to Psalm 2, where in Psalm chapter 2, Yahweh's Messiah, the anointed son, is given the nations as an inheritance. And Psalm 2 says he will rule in justice and truth. And thus, there's a warning at the end of the song. At the end of Psalm 2, the warning is to the kings of the earth. They were commanded to receive the son as Yahweh's emissary and to confess their absolute allegiance to him as the true sovereign. So in this statement, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. Peter is confessing that Jesus is the anticipated Messiah of Israel, not merely a forerunner, 
Certainly not just a prophet who's going before the Messiah. No, he is the Christ. He is both the hope of Israel and the hope of the Gentiles. Christ is king. He's the anointed son of the Father, and he's also one with Yahweh. Notice Jesus' response to him, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So here's a, a, one of the rare times that Peter, before the resurrection, did a good job and said something. This was, though, divinely inspired. This came from heaven. This was revealed to him. This wasn't something he dreamed up or thought up. Now, Jesus references him as a blessed person, and he calls him Simon. This is the Greek uh, spelling of the Hebrew Simeon, very common name. But if in Hebrew you wanted to say that someone was son of, you would use the uh, prefix ben. So I don't know what that means for me. My last name is Ben-Ham, son, Ben, son of Ham. I guess if you were to say it literally in Hebrew, son of Ham, Ben. In Aramaic, you would use the word bar. And so he's using an Aramaic phrase to say Simon's son of Jonah. And this is the first time and the only time bar Jonah ever comes up in scripture. Scholars are very divided over how to interpret this. It could just mean Simon, son of Jonah or son of John. Hey, you are John's son. You're Jonah's son. But this confession you just made is not from your dad, Jonah. It's from your heavenly father. This could certainly be the case. I think something more might be happening here. Not only is this confession not man-centered, or man originated, it was direct revelation from the Father. But when Jesus calls Simon son of Jonah, that Greek phrase son of Jonah is almost identical in the Greek to sign of Jonah. Now Jesus had just done this in Matthew chapter 16, right up there in verse 4. He had already said, I'm not giving you any sign except the sign of Jonah. He's actually already said this back in Matthew chapter 12. He talked again about the sign of Jonah. If Jonah's sign was, of course, that on the third day, the prophet would be risen again and would go and preach good news to the Gentiles, it's fitting that Jesus would be linking Simon Peter with Jonah. In a sense, Jonah at Joppa had the commission to go and to share the good news, or the news of judgment, rather, with the Gentiles. And remember in Acts, it's at Joppa that Peter is also commissioned to go to the Gentiles. He's connecting, possibly, Peter with Jonah, saying Jonah's message is risen on the third day. And Peter, that's the same confession that you must make. Risen on the third day. And then Jesus says something very significant in the Greek. It's a wordplay that doesn't come out in English. But let me read verse 18, the second half, emphasizing two Greek words. So look with me at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Petros, masculine noun, Peter, and on this Petra, feminine noun, rock, I will build my church. Now, uh, if you haven't heard before, this verse is highly contested. The Roman Catholic Church would read this, and they would make the assertion that because of this, Peter is the first pope, because Jesus is building his church upon the rock of Peter. Now, that makes me crack a smile, because you and I know Peter. Peter the rock, the rock of Peter. So Peter's the foundation. He's the first pope based on this. I think a short survey of Peter's life dismisses that 
as an honest way to interpret this. But if Jesus is saying, no, the church is built upon Peter, he's saying, I'm the architect, I'm building my church, and I'm the true foundation, but I will build my church upon those like you, Peter, who confess what is true about me. You see, I tend to lean more to interpreting Jesus saying this, hey, Peter, you're a little stone, but what you just confessed about me that I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, upon the immovable bedrock of that confession, I will build my church. Ephesians 2 says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, not themselves that they were wonderful men, but they came bearing the good news, the confession. Paul would say to Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And it's upon that that I'll build my church. Men who stand upon that confession. In fact, in 1 Peter, who wrote 1 Peter, by the way? You guys aren't awake today. Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he says in chapter 2, it's Jesus who is the living stone, the precious stone, the stone of stumbling and offense, and the chief cornerstone that all the builders reject. So no man is the foundation upon which the church is built. No, the church is built upon this singular confession that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He will die and rise on the third day. And you and I as the church, we all share in Peter's confession. We all share the same confession. There is no member of Christ's church who rejects Peter's confession. In fact, if you're here and you say, I reject Peter's confession, the truth is you are not the church. You are a phony. You are sitting here smiling with your Bible saying, yeah, I agree with a lot that's said, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. You are not a part of the church, of Christ's true church. We are all united together in affirming that Jesus is Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, no one can confess Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit within us affirms together, we can all say, like Peter, he is the Christ. And Jesus says here that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. As he stands before the cave of Pan, Jesus affirms there is nothing that can stand against the church. Now remember in our Genesis study, city gates are important. Remember from our study, city gates are the place of commerce. They're the place of important decisions. And of course, they're the first line of protective defense. The business of the city is conducted at and through the city gates. The defenses of the city rise and fall based on the security of the city gate. Jesus here says the gates of hell won't prevail against the church that he builds. So that does not mean gates are brought into battle and are put on the front line as an offensive weapon. That means they are defensive. So Jesus is saying, even the gates of hell won't stand a chance against my church. Now, he says the word Hades here, which is a reference to death. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying Satan's weapon, death, is no match for the son of the living God. This place of death, Hades, cannot stop the church. Why? Because sin and death have been conquered by Christ. And therefore, we, with the gospel, have the power to pluck those condemned in their sin, dead in their trespasses and sins, and to declare to them eternal life, and then they're raised 
from the dead and seated with him in heavenly places. You see, hell's gates don't prevail against the church. As they stand before this wicked place, Jesus not only affirms that, but he also affirms his preeminence over every false idol and ideology. All of the world's systems, all the world's kingdoms will not prevail against the true God and King. So we see the gates here, but there's a second set of gates in this text. Not only do we have the church's confession, but secondly, we have the church's commission. Look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, when you have keys, those keys are signs of authority. If you have keys to a building, you have the authority to open or to shut access to that building. Here, Jesus bestows the access point, the gate, if you would, the entry of the kingdom. Who does he bestow that upon? Well, we could misread this and say, Peter. And of course, we always have the silly jokes where you go to heaven's gate and there's Peter. It's always Peter standing at the gate. Tell me why you should come into heaven. And then a silly joke ensues. That's not the idea here. He's not just giving Peter the keys, not just the 12 disciples, but he's giving the keys to all the church. Now, he says here, I'm going to give you not the keys of heaven, but the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom is distinct from the church. It's something broader. It's something more all-encompassing. The church is God's people, but then we have a broader group known as the kingdom. And notice that he says, that the entry to the kingdom, what is permitted, what is restricted, has been given to the church. So this binding and loosing is language that the rabbis would use. It means to permit something, it's bound. Or to, res- to, to uh, restrict something, uh, I said that backwards. To permit means to bind, and to restrict means to loosen. So if we bind something here, it's bound in heaven. If we loose something here, it's loosed in heaven. And so follow with me here. The word church is used here by Jesus which in the Greek is ekklesia, it means, it means assembly. But we see that it's much more than just merely a gathering. No, the church has been commissioned with the authority from Jesus who says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go as my emissaries, as those who are my ambassadors, I'm commissioning you to go to the nations, disciple them, and to declare to them, your sins are bound or your sins are loosed. Now, what right do I have to say to someone like Jesus, your sins are forgiven? What right do I have to say that? Well, John MacArthur helps us here. He says, quote, I have the authority based on the word of God to say to that individual, your sins are retained, your sins are not forgiven. That authority is not based on your title. It's not based on your office. It's not based on your intelligence, thank God. It's not based on your holiness. That authority is simply the authority of God's word. It's not just given to Peter. It's given as papal supremacy. No, it's conferred upon the entire assembly, the entire church body. Each and every believer has been given keys to the kingdom. 
Now, that does not mean you and I have individual autonomy where I can just go to a side door and open up the key and open up the gate and let anyone into the kingdom that I want. That's not the idea. Going rogue. This is a corporate authority. It's one that's accountable to the entire church and the entire word of God. That's why, one of the many reasons why our elders have such a high regard for accurate biblical teaching. Why? Because of what is at stake. This pulpit must always represent God's heavenly revelation, not man's fickle opinion. And until my dying breath, this will be a place where God's word is taught and exposited. Plus, you don't want my opinion about anything anyway. That's also one of the reasons why we have such a high regard here for regenerate church membership. In other words, we don't add people to our church member list unless we can confirm that they have a legitimate testimony, one that bears repentance and faith, and that they can explain the gospel. So do you know why when we do baptisms, we don't just say to anyone out on the beach, does anyone here else, anyone else want to be baptized? Why do we not do that? Because we don't want to allow false converts to have a false sense of security. We don't want someone to think they're a Christian when they actually aren't. You see, at all of our member classes, we teach that the church, this gathering, this assembly, we are like an embassy. An embassy is a place within a foreign country that represents their own home country's interests in that nation with ambassadors who reside there and where citizens gather. So if you and I go overseas and our passport expires, what do we do? We go to the embassy. When we go into the embassy, they don't make us a citizen. They just confirm or affirm, oh, you are a citizen based on the evidence that you've provided. And so our elders don't make anyone Christians here, but we do, to the best of our ability, evaluate your life and your fruit and your, your testimony and say, from what it appears, yes, you are saved. Have assurance of your salvation. And see, that's what our commission is as the church. We as the church represent the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Each and every local church is a kingdom embassy, binding and loosing on earth what is bound and loosed in heaven. So in a sense, you could say we are heaven's gatekeeper. The gatekeeper is, of course, like a watchman on the wall. You don't let enemies in the gate. You don't let wolves or thieves into the sheep pen. You guard it. You watch the wall. And yes, you joyfully welcome those who belong, but you ardently defend it against those who do not. So how important is the church? The world would diminish our assembly and say, oh, that's just a religious gathering. Or when pandemics arise, the church is just a non-essential group. When there's no pandemics, oh, the church is just irrelevant to the real world. In fact, for the last two years, many modern evangelical church leaders have deeply diminished the importance of the church to just a weekend event. Just tune in online. Come to church online. No engagement conveniently from the comfort of your couch. Let's be honest, from the comfort of your bed. Now, here at Shoreline, we do offer an online option for our members who are sick or traveling to be somewhat a part of singing and study but not as a means of replacing our gathering and never as a means of true fellowship. Hebrews 10 is clear. We do not forsake the assembly as some are in the habit of doing. If that's all church is, if church is just a weekend event, then it's no wonder that 
the church fails to compete with youth sports, with travel, or with the glory of sleeping in. Right? You can just live your life however you see fit and just tune in to catch the music and the message when it's more conducive to our busy schedule. But is that how Jesus sees his church? And see, I use that personal pronoun on purpose. The church is his church. The church belongs to Jesus. He says, I will build my church. So I may be a pastor here, but I've never referred to Shoreline as my church. Now you might say, I invite you to my church, and we understand what we mean by that. We belong to this church, but the church doesn't belong to us. So I, I may be a pastor here, but I'm not the person who this church belongs to. No, I, alongside Pastor Micah and our deacons, we are submitted to the senior pastor, and it's not me. It's Jesus. This church and the universal church belong to him. How important is Jesus' church to him and to his kingdom? He says, I give you the keys of the very kingdom of heaven. I've been given all authority, and I am conferring that authority upon you. Some of you parents have teenagers. You know what it's like to leave home. I'm leaving you in charge, youngster. I'd like to come home and have the house not burned down, please. And you come home. You've given that authority. You've bestowed that. And it seems a little bit scary. But we've been given that authority. But sadly, like in Jesus' day, there's confusion. So let's move into this third section briefly confusion. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, this is the turning point in Jesus's life and ministry. Up until now, he'd been very cryptic and veiled in his mission, but now it's explicitly clear why he had come in his incarnation. The centerpiece of the gospel is now on display. I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise. Now, up until now, Peter must have been on cloud nine. The disciples are always competitive. He must be thinking, I can't believe Jesus just called me the rock. Man, he's going to build this church. I'm, I'm the rock. And up in the clouds, the hot air goes to his head because notice what he says in verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, because that's a good idea, rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, this is understandable. Jesus is loved by his disciples. Peter loves his rabbi. He believes he's the Messiah. He and the disciples have left everything to follow and obey him. So, of course, he's not applauding this news But just as his confession of Jesus the Christ was divinely inspired, now this suggestion is demonically motivated. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The rock one minute and the devil the next. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this. Satan's plan for Jesus was not the cross. Yes, Satan wanted Jesus dead, but not in a way that would bring redemption to Adam's race. Even before his public ministry, back in Matthew chapter 4, Satan has been seeking to tempt Jesus to worship him so that he can convey on him all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, the devil's desire 
It was to kill Jesus, but first it was for Jesus to be recognized as Israel's Messiah without the suffering, death, and redemption. Just the glory, just the recognition, all the power and the prestige. And you see, I think that's what it means to set your mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. To bypass the cross in order to reach glory. That is man-centered. And yet, how often does the church get confused, like Peter, about the gospel? And we simply bypass the cross to try to attain glory. For example, Ligonier Ministries does a state of theology every two years. And one of the statements they ask you to agree or disagree with is this. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Now, I don't like the way that's worded because there's no such thing as a small sin. All sin is treason. All sin is declaration of war against a holy and just God. But here's how people answered that statement this year. Every two years they do this. And 58% of people strongly disagree that even one sin deserves damnation. You see, this is a gross misunderstanding of sin and hell and the gospel. And that is an indictment not only on the modern church, it's an indictment on pastors. Pastors who have failed to stand before the people of God, declaring the word of God that saves people from the wrath of God, expressed in the love of God, provided through the Son of God. You see, the church today is just as confused today about the gospel as Peter was in our text. Today we entertain countless counterfeit gospels, but then we wonder, why is the church so anemic? Why is the church so impotent in our power against sin and the flesh and the philosophies and principles of this world? Why? Because we've abandoned the gospel, we've abandoned the cross, seeking the crown. Back in verse 20, Jesus strictly charges his disciples, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Why? Because people would seek to seat him on the throne before hanging him from the cross. That's why he takes the time next to explain what it means to truly embody Christ. Look at this last section, the cross. Familiar words for us. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Men, I know many of you are pursuing some sort of greatness, some sort of excellence, some sort of success. And Jesus would say, you can gain the whole world, but what does it profit you if you lose or forfeit your soul? He says this to Peter, but he's also speaking of the church. And the church militant is first the church mortified. The church triumphant must first be the church repentant. And there's no bypassing the cross. There's no bypassing the crucified Christ, the crucified believer, the agony and the torment of putting our sin to death and laying our costly lives down in self-denial in order to pursue Jesus. Sadly, we today seek the cross or the crown without the cross and we follow Peter's satanically inspired advice. But I like what Tozer says from the grave. Tozer says this, quote, in every Christian's heart there's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. 
Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and the worldliness among gospel believers today. He goes on to say, we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. You see, Jesus beckons us to take up our cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Well, Jesus ends this dialogue in verses 27 and 28. The first is a foreshadowing of his second coming, and the second is a foreshadowing of what is about to take place. He says, For the Son of Man, I, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's a picture of his second advent. We're going to celebrate, starting next week, his first advent as we talk about the incarnation. And yet, in verse 28, this is a foreshadowing of what's about to happen in just six days in chapter 17. Jesus says, Some of you standing here will not taste death until you see me, the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom. Well, just six days later, Peter, James, and John will get a picture, a glimpse of the resplendent glory of Christ their King on the Mount of Transfiguration, a picture of his kingdom coming. And so here in this text, we have the first mention of the word church, and a challenge, a call for us to rise up to the occasion that God has given us to see the importance of who we really are, to know that our purpose is not merely to come and to have a nice warm cup of coffee and a handshake, but there's a much deeper calling. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, in light of our calling, in light of the fact that we hold the very keys of the kingdom, He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We're going to see the call and calling over and over. And here's how we're to do this. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he says, here's our confession. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, we have unity in the Spirit because of our confession. We are already united in Christ. And yet Paul would say, in light of this call to be gatekeepers for the kingdom, the way we interact one with another, there's a certain way that we are not to and are to. So listen, church, when you and I interact with one another in prideful boasting and in harshness, rather than with all humility and gentleness, when you are impatient, short, curt, rude, distant, superficial, hostile, argumentative, slanderous, or unkind, rather than being patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, more is at stake than just your petty differences in your relationship or reputation. You know what's at stake? The integrity of the gate. Paul would say to you, I urge you, walk worthy of your call. Life and death hang in the balance. Eternity is at stake. So whatever differences threaten to fracture the unity that's already ours, we must be willing to bear with one another in love. 
for the sake of Christ's church, but more than that, for the sake of Christ. As we come near to the close of this calendar year, there is much to thank God for in our fellowship, but there's also much reason to stay vigilant. Do you think that Satan is happy, that we have a fellowship that is growing in this community that is unashamedly preaching the gospel and the word of God? Do you think Satan's happy with that? Not at all. We have war at our doorstep. My prayer is that war would not enter this house because his promise assures us upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Let's stand together. We'll pray and we'll close in song, reminding ourselves of Jesus, our firm foundation. Father in heaven, you are the living God and you reveal to Peter this important confession, which is our confession, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the beloved son whom the nations are warned to receive, to give allegiance to. And we do that this morning. In our hearts, we set apart Christ as Lord. Lord, we see the importance of our unity, that it's already a reality, and yet it's something that we are to continue to pursue. And so, Father, I pray as we confessed earlier, if there's pride, if there's division, if there's selfishness, if there's unforgiveness, if there's bitterness, Lord, if there's misunderstandings, confusion that enters the body, Lord, would you root it out through love, through forgiveness, through truth. Lord, we thank you so much that you will build your church. You are the architect and you are the firm foundation. Lord, we cling to Christ knowing that you truly are clinging to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope of the gospel that is ours in Christ. May we declare it boldly as we should in these dark and despairing times that all may hear and declare that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of the Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.